Sluggero Till podcast is sponsored by Queen's University Belfast. Researchers at Queen's are at the heart of supporting global efforts to understand the coronavirus. To discover more about their research, please visit qeb.ac.uk. Welcome to the Slugger O'Toole In Conversation podcast. My name is Brian O'Neill and my guest today is Greg Keefe. Greg is head of the School of Natural and Built Environment at Queen's University Belfast. He is an academic and urban designer with 25 years experience. Greg, thanks for being on the show. Hi, nice to see you, Brian. So how are you, uh, how are you surviving the, uh, the great lockdown of, of 2020? Where are yeah. you in the, at the moment? Well, I, I'm in the Lake District in, in England. Um, I came up here um, just before lockdown because, I, had, because I, was, I was meant to be in Brussels and Brussels was locked down. And, and so I worked from here and then got stuck here. So I've been, I've been enjoying um, rural life for the last few months. Oh, very good. I mean, I was at I was at the Lake District several years ago. Um, is it? I mean, not not to disclose your location, but are you in a town? Are you very remote? There? Are you near um, anywhere? In between, I'm sort of in South Lakes, Colton. It's a small hamlet, so I have a place up here where I spend the summer usually, which is it's been very nice because I've seen the seasons, which is something you don't usually see in a city so much. So it's been quite exciting. Well, when I was at the late district, I just remember lots and lots of Japanese tourists who seemed to like Beatrix Potter. Yeah, they, yeah, they, they do. They, they they do Beatrix Potter um, to learn English at the age of nine. So they get very ah. very enthused about Beatrix Potter, and so they 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 also do. And then they do um, at fifteen. They do they do um, Wordsworth as as part of their O level equivalent. So so they 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 like to come to the late district for both those things. Actually, kill, kill two birds with one stone. Yeah. Well, the, uh, I can't imagine there's many tourists around at the moment, or, or maybe there is, maybe they're getting home tourists, are they? Uh, it's crazy with home tourists, yeah. Every single camper van in the whole of Great Britain is is at the moment in the Lake District. <laughs> 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 well, I was going to say, you're, you're, you're quite the jet setter then, because you, you, you spend your time then between the Manchester, Belfast and the Lake District. Yeah. Mm. And wh- wh- where's your favourite, or does it depend on the time of year? Um, I, 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 well, I, li- I like all, all the different things. I'm a, I'm a city boy, really. Grew up in the city. Um, when I first came to Lake District, I thought, I thought I'd seen the Garden of Eden. So I had this dream of living here. Um, so I, I, I like a bit of both now. Um, and I love Belfast. I, I, like, I like the people. I, like, I have a, a, an Irish family anyway, so... You know, so so I, I sort of feel at home in Belfast. It feels feels like halfway between Manchester and Ireland. So I, I sort of understand yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, when we when we had the idea for for the podcast, I, I <clears throat> you were top of my list of, of guests because I know you've done uh, you've been very good to do some of our live events, and I, I figured COVID is right up your street because I don't think for someone who's involved in urban design and architecture. It's like a real life case study, really. That's this kind of unfolding in our in our mists. What's happening? Yeah, so it's amazing. It's 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 been amazing actually, because because obviously pandemics are a part of the history of cities, you know. So, you, you know, and and you know, I I spent my um, formative years reading reading about cholera epidemics and the Great Plague and reading Defoe and and Peeps and things and reading the works of JPK and things and. And so to actually be in one is, you, mm. you never really thought it would happen, but, you know, it's, it's, been, it's been really exciting, really, in some ways, and, and also frightening. 
And, and can you give us a, maybe a bit of historical perspective on that? Because, I mean, that's, that's not something maybe a lot of people would know about, you know, how it shaped cities in the past. Yeah, well, 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 well when cities started, they were, they were quite, they were limited by size, generally due to, due to the fact of pandemic. So pandemic limited city size, usually. You know, cities developed cholera, you know, before there was separation of water and sewage. You know, cholera was a real problem in cities. And so, you know, cities, and, and one of the ways they, they managed those with technologies, so sewage was invented in Roman times and, and obviously reinvented later on. And, and so that's one of the interesting things, you know, stop cholera. But also the beer and tea are part of the technologies used to sterilize things as well. So, so you know, our, the, our cultures of sort of drinking tea and, and um, drinking beer are, are also sort of pandemic solutions, you know, which is quite interesting. Yeah, because I remember reading the, the whole idea of, um, not, not what's the term, quarantine, quarantine, yeah, comes <laughs> from uh, the Italian word, it means like 40 days. Yeah. And it's a historic concept that before you would be able to enter some of the old cities, you had to go somewhere to quarantine area for like 40 days just to make sure you had nothing before you were able to enter the city. Yeah, that's true. Well, in, you know, yeah, because in places like Dubrovnik, there's, there's, there's a little island called Quarantine just just outside the port where with a little fort on it where you'd stop and, and sit for your 40 days to check that you hadn't got anything. You know, I, I suppose it's a bit like bringing your dog back from somewhere and leaving it, you know, making sure it hasn't got rabies or something and leaving it somewhere, isn't it? It's the same sort of thing. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so, so obviously pandemics were really, really frightening things. And of course, before modern medicine, nobody really knew quite what caused them or, or what it did. You know, there's a famous story about, um, you know, in, in Manchester, in the, in the cholera epidemics of, of 1840, they... Um, JPK noticed that alcoholics didn't catch cholera, and so uh-huh. he, he was he was really excited by this. But he he couldn't work out because he was he was a teetotaler himself. He, he was trying to work out whether beer was good for you or not, and 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 this was having you know as a Methodist he was having great difficulty with 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 um, this decision, and um, so you know and 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 obviously it was the boiling of the water. That killed the bacteria you see in the in the brewing process and the yeast mm-hmm. that 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 meant that alcoholics only drank beer you see everyone else was drinking <laughs> a mixture of, of of things so it's quite interesting you know you know so yeah because cholera is, is spread primarily via water isn't it yeah. i mean it's not it's not spread person to person is no, it no no it's, it's really from drinking polluted water yeah sewage water with sewage in it generally Okay, and that was, I forget the name of the chap, but that, that was a case in London. He, he observed approved, that, yeah. yeah, he seemed to be noticing that, you know, it was a certain, it was one stamp pipe, wasn't there, or something in London that seemed to be contributing to this. Yeah, and, and that was, of course, the beginning of city mapping, you know, which is, you know, as urban designers, we spend all our time mapping things now, and, and really Booth's maps of stamp pipes and things were, 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 were the, the first modern analytical maps, really, of cities, you know, used for research, which I think is sort of, you know, quite interesting as well, that it, that it, creates, it creates new practices for us as designers, you know. Mm. It also shows the importance of, of observation, doesn't it? You know, the kind of being and kind of uh, looking out for non, non-conventional 
ways of looking at things, isn't it? Yeah, mm. and then there's one of the beautiful things, isn't it, about about cities is is that they 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 have so many actors and activities in them that they're 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 they're, they're, they're enduringly interesting, you know, and, and and the outlying things are often the best things, you know, that cities have are innovative because there's space for people for people to do weird things which create new cultures and new exciting things i think i was reading on the internet um the other day it was a concept of elephant paths they call them in holland but there's another name um do you know it's when people ignore and the actual official path and walk through the grass oh, right yeah like desire do, lines do, desire lines desire okay. lines that's the word yep and i thought that was an amazing concept that to say that some of the universities in america they don't when they when they create new buildings they don't put down the paths they, they wait a year or two right. to see where people <laughs> the students and the staff walk yeah and that and then after that, they say, "Well, that's that. We'll make the path along this route." Yeah, well, which you think is it, yeah. I suppose that's like crowdsourcing, isn't it? In a way, it's 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 sort of like a, a spatial crowdsourcing, isn't it? You see you see where the crowd goes and 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 what people like and things. It's it's sort of a, a peer to peer sort of system, and and of course, you know, modern urban design is moving sort of towards peer to peer systems and things, which are, which is sort of quite interesting, community based activism and things are the new things you know which are which are linked to those sort of ideas I yeah because as you, as you know from architecture or design i mean you you may set out to create a building or a space but the actual real intended use may be entirely different you know once you kind of put it out there you know how people actually use it in real life yeah no, well that's and that, that's one of the real challenges of design you know whether you nail people to the floor on how they use things and be really deterministic or, or whether you create flexible systems, you know, and, and, and really architecture is, is an argument between those two ideas really, you know, that, that some people create, you know, objects that are, that are deterministic and other people create flexible open systems that, that people can adapt. And, you know, so, that, so I think that's quite, quite an interesting, I suppose one of the challenges of, of modern architecture sits in that space, I suppose. Okay. Now, when it comes to COVID, we keep hearing that um, that Lenin quote of, you know, there's decades when nothing happens and then there's weeks when, when kind of decades happen. <laughs> yeah. And it seems we're living through this kind of very accelerated time. And I, I think one of the best explanations, I think, of, of what's happening is, is the idea that the COVID is an accelerator of, of trends that were happening anyway, and it's kind of brought them forward 10 years. So we see that in maybe home learning, homeworking, sh- online shopping, etc. I mean, is, is that your take on it, or what, what's your kind of view of what's happening at the moment? Yeah, it, it's, it's been incredible, hasn't it? Because, because I, I, think, I, think, I think, you know, there's an idea of emergency, isn't there, that's, that's different from from palliative care or something, you know, like an emergency. If someone's lying by the side of the road, you might do things that you might not normally do to somebody in order to save them because it's an emergency. So you might cut their leg off to stop them bleeding or, you know, <laughs> do something, you know, yeah. you know so there's an idea of emergency that, that that's really interesting, isn't it? That actually all the things we thought were impossible to do 
can get done straight away when it's an emergency. So roads can be blocked off for cyclists to get down them or to make more space for pedestrians after being for years and years promised that the car was king and had to take over the road. So, so yeah, I, I agree that. And I, and I think all over the place, you know, I, I think, I think there's, um, you, you know, I, I, I think a change of environment, I'm Piaget saying a change of environment is needed for, for new learning. You know, and I suppose that rapid change of environment means we've all learned loads of stuff really quickly, haven't we, because of that. And I, I suppose it's making us different people, you know, which, which and we want different solutions because of that. Yeah, because I, I, think, I think as humans, we, we like sameness and inertia and routine. And people don't like deviating from the norm, no. like in, in education or businesses no. or whatever. But it's almost like with COVID, you're, you're, you're forced to do these things you've no choice yeah and 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 what, and what you realize is yeah some things are better some things are quicker some things are easier some things aren't as good you know so 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 it does get you to to try things out and i suppose one thing about being a designer is we're we're, we're always challenging our students to think in multiple solution world you know you know, rather than not the first thing you can think of or what was the last thing that you did. But how can you, what 20 answers are there to this problem? What 50 answers are there? Can, have you run out of answers to this problem? And I suppose this sort of flexible environment of COVID has, has meant we've had to work like that, haven't we? We've had to try loads of different things. And it's made a real biodiversity of solution, which I think has been really quite exciting. Yeah, it's a creative time. Um, what... What do you think has been, um, what do you think's working? Because I, I suppose it's, it's probably not going to be the extremes. As in, we're not going to like sit, sit in our homes for the, the rest of eternity, hopefully. It, it seems to be that we're going to end up with this kind of like hybrid model of maybe working from home a few days a week into the office, you no know, communal spaces. I mean, is, is that how you see it working out? Because I, I think what a lot of people have discovered is it's okay to work from home, but it can, it can get quite lonely and your work life bleeds into your home life. And some people describe it as uh, they're just kind of, um, they're living in the office almost, or their home has just become their office. And, you know, so it, does it make us appreciate the kind of barriers maybe between home life, office life? Yeah, I, th- I think the compartmentalization of, of, of life is, has been a product of industrialization, hasn't it? You know, before industrialization, people just lived, you know, and, and, and mm. work was part of life and life was part of home and home was part of life and work. So, you know, and, and, and so, you, you know, and then industrialization started to put compartmentalized work as a 12 hour or eight hour thing on six days or five days a week. And the rest of the time was time to do other things, which is a real, quite a change really. And, and I suppose then this COVID has, has re-blurred that boundary, hasn't it? That's working from home. And I, and I, and I think, I, I think what, what I found is people who enjoy their jobs quite enjoy working at home. That's been my, my personal understanding of it. And people who, who, who do the job because they have to do it have found it less enjoyable, you know, that, that, that actually, so, so, so I think that's been one of the things. I think the other thing is that there's, um, the idea of presenteeism is disappearing, isn't it? That, that mm-hmm. people used to be at work and sit there doing nothing, trying to look like they're at work. Whereas now you, people have, 
the more trusting that the job's getting done, that you can do it in the time that's available. I know certainly in our school, we've got many staff with young children who spend the day teaching their kids and do the university at, uh, in the evening, you know, and there's been incredible flexibility in that, which is which has allowed them to to get the best of both worlds, spend time with their kids, and and you know work and, and make a living. So I, th- I, th- I think it's an interesting time, but I do think the loneliness of being at home can be quite difficult. We are social creatures, and the and the nuclear family is a relatively new idea, isn't it? Again, it's an, another industrial idea. You know, and and I think it, it it's sort of problematic when you get trapped in a house. You know, divorce rates are up, aren't they? Apparently, massively. You know, um, everyone wants to move house. Apparently, the estate agents are telling me there's there's never been such a demand for housing as the, as this. Well, on that the subject of on the nuclear family, because what what we discovered is. Um, we booked a holiday home for a few days with some friends just up up, up in Ballycastle in the north coast. And they have two kids, you know, similar age to, to our son. And we found it was a lot more enjoyable and less stressful going on holiday with another family, mainly because the kids have somebody to play with. Yeah. So if we went on our own, Junior would be annoying us <laughs> not to play with them, bring them to the beach, etc. Whereas if we had other kids, he'd kind of just <laughs> leave us to get on with it. And I, w- I was thinking this kind of concept of... Uh, I was kind of curious, can you see a maybe a future trend of multi-generational households or people deciding you know, to kind of live together? Not not a commune as such, but, you know, like like some kind of shared accommodation. Because I think people are discovering that life on your own is pretty lonely and depressing. I mean, it, like it can really affect your mental health, you know, if you don't have good interpersonal relationships yeah, well it's, it's, it's been an amazing change i think that because because i was reading a study in belgium that said that um if you take a child age 10 today um and you look at how far they've been away from their parents in terms of distance the maximum distance they've been on average was 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 less than 200 meters away at the age of 10 mm-hmm. And the number of yeah. people they'd met was was something like uh, who they'd met independently of their parent was was less than ten. And if you looked mm-hmm. at their parents, you found that that when they were ten, they'd been two kilometers away from home, and they'd they'd met over a hundred people independently of their parents. And their, their their those children's grandparents had been twenty kilometers from home, and had met a thousand people independently. <laughs> <laughs> of their parents, you know. So we've we've had this sort of logarithmic isolation happening through generations, which which it ends with total loneliness. You know, Brian, where you where you like you say you 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 are you're trapped in 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 this really small world. You know, and we realise we work better as as teams and we work better as communities, don't we? You know, we we know that. Well, well we do because I mean, I'm sure you you find it probably. In, in your school, because what I talking to friends who, who are lecturers at Queens and UU is is they're telling me students are coming in now and the rates of ones with with mental health are kind of off the charts. I mean, you could be looking at a quarter of students now with anxiety and depression, and a lot of it seems to be um, this kind of helicopter parenting. You know that kids 
probably until they go to university, have never really spent any time on their own or had self-directed play. Every every minute of their day is, is scheduled with classes and exams, and mm-hmm. and we're kind of is this mental health time bomb, as it were? Yeah, well, that, we we see it, you know we see it in our school, you know that, that that exact trend. Yeah, that 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 kids haven't had much much freedom, you know, and they haven't actually been very bored, you know. I, I, you know, I, I think I think boredom's a, an underrated um, experience. <laughs> yeah, well, most of the creative things I did as a kid were because I was really bored, you know. So we'd go and do something, you know, like build a treehouse or you know, make a cart or or you go fishing or go for a bike ride to somewhere we hadn't been before because we're bored, you know, and now kids are never bored, yeah. are they? And, and and through doing those things we got we got all those all those life skills of team working, of of understanding danger, you know. I, I was you know, I, I was talking to the headmaster of a a school, um, a secondary school in Manchester and he was saying that that the average age of a kid being run over is now fifteen. Whereas in the yeah. 1960s, it was there were six the average age of a kid who got mm-hmm. run over, because kids were testing out roads at six <laughs> in the 60s, yeah. <laughs> and now they're testing out roads at 15 because they've never been out, yeah. they've never been allowed to cross a road on their own till 15, you know. And uh, uh, I suppose we should clarify that we're we're definitely pro against or, 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 or against <laughs> <laughs> knocking down kids, of course. <laughs> I think I think you're fine. Yeah. Because um, that, that's that's the, the bit that blows my mind. Because I, I grew up in Belfast, inner city Belfast, during the Troubles, where, I mean, literally, we had bombs and shootings every other week on our street in the neighbourhood. And my parents had no hesitation whatsoever in sending me out the street to play. And you go out and you disappear for hours and you come back for your lunch. And now you very seldom ever see kids out. They're all kind of stuck and screens and I don't think it's necessarily the kids want to be that way it's just their parents have kind of settled on the kind of easy safe option yeah. of you know just the electronic babysitter yeah, it's, it's, but it's gone crazy because cause when, when my, my son's now 19 but when, when, he, when he was about 4 well maybe 3 I decided he said he wanted to go to the shop so I, so I gave him a pound coin and said will you go and buy a pint of milk at the shop and I live on a terrace mm-hmm. street and the shops at the bottom of the street, you didn't have to cross a road. It was, it's about 80 meters to the shop. And he got mm-hmm. rescued halfway there by, by, by a stranger who, who wouldn't <laughs> let him get there. <laughs> you know, because he was a child out on the street, you know, and, and, and obviously I'd, I'd been to a shop at that age, you know, and, and, I was, and, and you realize that I, I don't think the risks are any greater. Maybe the risk from the car is probably greater than it probably was in those days, but, but probably not the risk from anything else. Yet we've, we've become very fearful of, of the world, haven't we, with this nuclear family situation? I suppose that, that links again to COVID, I think. I think that, um, you know, we, we were also very fearful of change in our cities. You know, we'd seen the, the last 40 years as the only option. You know, the, the car-orientated city has been the only option for the city. And, and I think we didn't know how to unlock it. And I think that we can now see different ways of, of living and working, can't we? You know, and, yeah, because I mean, I'm, I I have a car. I'm, I presume you have a car, yeah. yeah. Um, but I also cycle and I also walk a lot. But I, even as a driver, I would be the first to admit that the cars kill cities. 
that you either see it, it just destroys walkability, you know, shopping, restaurants. And when you take the cars away, it's just so much more pleasurable experience. Mm. But just there's such resistance to any kind of controls over mm. cars. People really take it like as an infringement of their personal mm. liberty to go and drive where the hell yeah, they like. I don't think that might change though, because because I I, I I read I read something. You know, that there's there's a, there's a million cars in Northern Ireland, aren't there? You know, you, you know that it's incredible. You've got a million cars, and and if you had a, a service, a, a sort of a just-in-time service where you could order a car on your phone to take you wherever you want to go. Self-driverless cars, we know, on a car hire basis, nobody owned a car. Mm-hmm. You'd only need 100,000 to to have less than a five-minute wait at peak times. Oh, you know, really? That's interesting. So you'd have a tenth the number of cars, you know, so, you know to, to do that. And, that and, 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 and you can see that would really change the city and still make people mobile, wouldn't it? You know, and... and, and um, you know, I, I, I've, I've got quite high hopes for the driverless automate, automated vehicle. I think it might re-sort of claim the street for us as pedestrians and cyclists. I think there'll be, there'll be space on the street for us. And, and I think they'll be a lot safer to drive, to ride your bike near because they won't try and kill you, you know. And, and they won't run children over because they'll be able to see them, <laughs> you know. Yeah. So, so, so I think there's some really interesting things, you know, because because one of the reasons kids get run over so much is not because they're stupid near roads. It's because they're small and and we mm-hmm. see them in our brain as being grown ups further away than they are. So so people don't break generally when a kid goes yeah. into the road because they perceive them as a, a grown up further away. So they don't think they have to stop. So that's why children get that's killed. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Because I know we had a podcast with Mark Hackett, who was giving us his alternative proposals for the York Street yeah. interchange in Belfast. And that was something he mentioned was he he said, look, this is probably going to take 10 years to build. But, you know, 10 years out, we could be looking at driverless cars and particularly driverless trucks. Because yeah. a lot of traffic on our road is, is trucks and supermarket deliveries and stuff like that there. And his point was saying, like, is there any point in spending all this money when what could happen is with a driverless truck, it could be happily beavering along at two, two o'clock in the morning on a road, not knowing anybody. And so the whole kind of driverless change is going to affect the road infrastructure and the, the, the death of peak times, yeah. you know, this kind of idea that it'll be more spread out. Yeah. And then when you look at this now, the working at home thing, you could have half the number of cars on the road any one day because you might you might be working Monday, Wednesday, Friday. I might be doing Tuesday, Thursday, you, you know, mm-hmm. so, so you, 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 could, you, could, you could see that, that Mark's dead right, you know, that, that actually, you know, it, it's a challenge to look far enough ahead as a, as a, as a, as a urban planner. You know, you know, we, we've started to look closer and closer to to the problem and, and not far enough to the solution. And that, that's and, and, and that's a that's one thing COVID's allowed us to do. You know, we, we've we've extrapolated a lot of a lot of trajectories, like you said, right at the start, Brian, where where we've gone. Oh, um, what about Internet shopping? We've extrapolated that now and we, we can see what the end of it, Internet shopping looks like. And we can we now decide 
maybe I don't want to do too much of it. You know, maybe I really want to keep the local shops open. Maybe it's much better to know where your vegetables come from than buy ones that have got a day left from, from Tesco's, you know, you know, and, and so, we, so we're making our choices there because we've extrapolated to, to a, a further future than we perhaps normally would. Okay. Um, what, what trends do you think will, will continue after COVID? I mean, do you, do you see it as this kind of hybrid of people in the office few days a week working from home more? Is, is that a trend you think will, will be around, will be sticking well, around? I, I think one of the interesting things, you know, the, the, off, the modern office was only invented in about 1910, right? One of the first ones was mm-hmm. the Larkin building by, by um, Frank Lloyd Wright in, in Buffalo. And, and, you know, these were, they were based around automated bookkeeping, you know, so, and, and typing pools and things like that. And then the, the Bureau Landschaft of, of the, the sort of 1960s was, was an extension of that, this flexible office space with, without, with, with rows of people doing clerical jobs, you see. And, and, and those things are changing. And I think we're, we're now re- finally unlocking ourselves from a 1900s idea of, of clerical work, you know. And, and I think, you know, that you could see it happening with WeWork and places like that where, the, where these flexible landscapes of of almost like a, a sort of theme park building where you could work in a cupboard, you could work on a skateboard, you could work, you know, in a window, you could work in a darkened hole, you could work in the cafe, you know, you could work in the sauna, you know, you could work anywhere. You could, you could see that trend was coming and now you can see, we all know we can work almost anywhere now. So I think the office is... Is, is, which is an interesting thing. I, th- I think the office is over as as a spec office building and, and as a, a place of, of imprisonment for, for eight hours a day. You know, that's one of the biggest changes, I think. Yeah, because I mean, there's a paradox of offices in that, you know, the trend of open plan offices. And when you talk to people who kind of work in, the, in these kind of, you know, modern dark satanic mills of open plan offices, they would just tell you, you get absolutely nothing done because it's so loud, constant interruptions. And they will say if they want to get any work done, they have to do it at home. <laughs> I know this is even before COVID, yeah. you know, because just the, the nature, they're just designed for economic reasons, for, for cheapness as opposed to efficiency. Yeah, and I, th- and I think that's the, one, of the, one of the really n- nice things, isn't it? That actually, you know, if, if COVID allows you to choose the right place to do the right job, that's really architecture. That's what we try and do with architecture. We try and make the right place for the right job. And, and generic stuff is never the right place for everything, is it? You know, you generally, you know, I always say to students, when you know, quite often when they're in a rush and they're behind, they often make a floor plan and, and write on it open plan office in big letters, you know, on this, on the building. And I would say, take the letters off and cover it in furniture, how it's going to be used and show me 20 ways it's going to be used. And then they, they quickly realize that actually, you know, architecture is about using space, not just depicting space, you know? And, and so I think that's quite an interesting thing. And, and, I, and I think it's really going to change you know, the city, because the city becomes a much more interesting thing when when there's loads more places to, to, to hang out in it and different sorts of places to hang out. You know, we've, we've got so used to a generic sort of city recently. It's, I think it'll be really exciting. On that, because um, I, I know you, you, you live in Manchester, and Manchester 
I mean, it's, it seemed to be quite innovative recently. It's It's got this proposal, you know, for the cycling network. And I know Andy Burnham is in the mirror. He seems quite proactive. Um, so, I mean, what's what's kind of Manchester doing that you, you think Belfast should be looking at? I mean, what, what's kind of working, do you think, in Manchester? Yeah, well, well, I think one of the really interesting things things that's happened in Manchester is 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 that is that they're 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 investing in a different demographic than other cities. So what what they've decided to do in Manchester is is that they're they're investing really between the ages of of ten and thirty in the city, and I think it's a really really interesting idea. So you know they're looking at how to make a really young vibrant city, and what they're saying is the other things. If you've got a young vibrant city, the other bits of the city will work. Because it's young people that that innovate and make things happen, and and I think Manchester realised that for a long time it has spent a lot of time because it was a socialist council trying to support, you know, old people, communities, all those things, and put a lot of effort into those, and it and it found that that actually, you know, and then it was left to to um, multinationals to op- operate the economic space and what they're trying to do now is get young people to to operate in the economic space in the city which i think is really really interesting and a, quite a different idea to to a lot of other uk cities so it's a very young city can can you give us some practical examples of what what they're well, doing or how, how they do the that cycle lanes are the number one thing about that you know one thing that's been shown is that is that most young people would like to cycle to work Right, because partly because okay. they want to keep fit, partly because it's cheap, and partly because it embeds exercise in their life and meets a, a lifestyle. So that's one thing where, by by, if, if you can make a a city that that um, engages, you know, different forms of transport, you then liberate one sort of people. I think the other thing is 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 trying to one one thing they've tried to do through the northern quarter is is to create a piece of a town where um, it's it's um, very flexible, it's relatively cheap, it's not being um, redeveloped by too many developers too much, you know, and, and actually, and, and what that's allowed is lots of innovative restaurants and cafes and bars and different things to, to occur at relatively low capital cost. See, Belfast has that mm-hmm. in, in, in um, Cathedral Quarter. And 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 it's one of the great things about Belfast, and I, I am a bit worried about the about the developments of of Cathedral Quarter that you're going to remove the 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 sort of um, youth culture and the young people's innovative um, new businesses from that area with the development, you know, because they're always aiming to to take it quite high in the market, and I, and I think the the sort of what I call the compost city bit is, of a city is really important. The compost heap of the city is really important where young people can take risks at low economic cost. I think it's really important. Okay. So it's the supporting the creativity. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and so, yeah, and, and Manchester has, um, it has a digital um, creativity community interest group. It has a an artistic interest group, you know, all run by, by the, by, um, the city, you know, basically the equivalent of of Invest NI 
but it but it runs mm-hmm. it runs specialist organizations for for young people in those creative industries which i think is very important you know and i think belfast could and northern ireland could really benefit from that because one of bell one of northern ireland's real strengths is 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 the demographic you know it's got the youngest population in the uk and so it, it okay. should really be the That's... biggest boom place really at the moment because it's got the most young people we're just exploiting that is interesting. exporting too many of them to the uk yeah well, exactly. And, and the um, vice chancellor would a... like me to mention at this point the um, the maximum student allocation number cap by the Northern Irish Assembly that sends thousands of students to the UK because Queens isn't allowed to recruit any more than a certain number of students every year. But so instead, the Northern Irish Assembly pays them to go to England. So you know, it's yeah, crazy, that's... and then they never come back. You know. Well, I know. Well. Not, not, not to get too into the realms of politics, but I know there's a huge issue with a lot of kind of from students from a Protestant background who maybe go to Scotland and don't come home, and then this kind of creates like a community leadership leadership vacuum. Yeah, I think it's true. You know, so that causes problems as well. Yeah. Um. If if tomorrow you are made um benign dictator of Belfast and Northern Ireland, I mean, what what do you think we should be looking to do i mean what practical steps because i, I kind of worry about belfast in that i don't find it a pleasurable place to hang out i i like the cathedral quarter i i like botanic but this a lot of the city center i find that the things i don't like about it is the traffic for number one and then number two we have a five-year-old and cars mm. and the stress of trying to keep him not running into a bus it's just not conducive to you know a pleasurable day out and then the actual built environment i find a lot of places now are quite harsh you know the the, the buildings there's yeah. not much greenery so a lot of time i tend to ah. avoid the city center these days and i prefer maybe the lisburn road botanic you know just the quieter suburby areas does that, does that yeah. kind of make sense I, I, Is that, I, I that, that's that? so true I, th- I, th- I think you know one thing i notice is the lack of tree cover in in lots of the areas of Belfast, and I think that's something that could be easily rectified. You know, I, I've got a project at the moment that I'm trying to get funded through the EU about rapid deployment of green infrastructure. You know, finding ways of mm-hmm. unlocking um, you know policy systems and technical systems so you can you can rapidly tree a street. You know. You know, because I, I think we need to plant a tree, a person, a year for the next 50 years probably to stop mm-hmm. climate change. And, and that means that in the city we're going to have to plant a million trees in Belfast in the next um, 20 years. So how do we do that? That would be the number one thing. And, and probably that means taking space for, from the car, which means we have to invent a different transport system that, and, and, a, and a different way of getting about that that deals with, Car usage, you know, Northern Ireland has the highest car usage in the UK. Um, I know Karen, who's my PA, does 25,000 miles a year in her car. And I do 5,000 miles a year in mine. Interesting, you know. That's, 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 that's impressive, isn't it? Um, I think our, our car barely moved during the, the lockdown. That Actually, the battery <laughs> died on it. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that, yeah, that the thing. Um, 
because whenever you mention a lot of these things, uh, like cycling, walkability, I mean, it's it's bizarre that, that a lot of politicians and a lot of people have a, a visceral hatred of it, you know, think some kind of tofu eating <laughs> veganism, you know, it, it, it's, it's weird that people are so kind of resistant to a lot of these things that seem pretty sensible like you know, yeah, the most well, people. Well, well, loads of things get weaponized don't they you know you know you know the the, the fact is the, the fossil fuel industries spend an, an amazing amount of money on advertising you know they they mm. they support all sorts of things don't they you know you know like you know top gear never pays for a car to be te- you know it, it gets given the car to test it gets you know all those things that that actually, but but the the walking industry and the bike industry haven't got a lot of freebies to hand me out, have they? And 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 so so yeah. actually, you know, it's 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 incredible. I I think we, you know, one thing that COVID might do is is break some of the the sort of hierarchies and and the and the the spheres of influence of 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 really you know sort of toxic capitalism of of the of the the carbon bits of capitalism which have been really horrendously toxic. You know, and, and I hope we can unlock those somehow. You know, like there's apparently there's, yeah. a, there's there are enough bikes in the UK. There's there's one and a half bikes a person in the UK. You know that. So so wow. so so <laughs> everyone's got a bike, or and most some people have two. I've got more than two. Um, you know, mm-hmm. you know, and, and so actually everyone should be should be not fearful of one if everyone's got one. <laughs> Shouldn't they really? I, yeah. I, I think it's. It's 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 trying to it's you know one thing about urban design urban design is about about creating processes that unlock change you know it's it's really it's quite difficult you know someone who lives in Comba probably thinks that they can't cycle to Belfast and and they probably yeah. give you the reasons of traffic of which they're part of because they're not cycling mm-hmm. <laughs> weather. Which is yeah. which is overrated as a as a as a thing, and then time and flexibility. We we did a survey in Manchester, and from Didsbury to the city centre, and, and we 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 took a range of people who walked, cycled, caught the bus, and went by car, and we got them to estimate, and they did it every day. And we got them to estimate how long it took them to get to work. And then mm-hmm. we then timed them doing it over over a week. Well, we did it for about three weeks. And what was really interesting was that was that the quickest was cycling. The second quickest was on the bus. The third quickest was by car, and the fourth quickest was walking. <laughs> right, but the car yeah. um, estimated its time. Was was a factor two out on its time. It said it took twenty minutes. It took forty minutes because they didn't wow. time all the different bits about finding a parking space or walking from the car park yeah. or going back. To, you know, so, so so and they didn't and 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 they 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 timed it on a good day and not on a bad day. You know, and all those things. So so the car's mm-hmm. always in a rush. The cyclist was got, got the same time every day. They could time their run. Consistent, and, yeah. and they knew exactly how long it took. You know, you know, and, and, and the bus could could vary a bit, but generally people on the bus overestimated how long the bus took. You know, so it's really yeah. interesting. Cars, 
It is, because I suppose part of it may be that if, if you spent, you know, 15, 20 grand, whatever it is on a car, you think, well, I, I, I got to use it here to get yeah. my money's worth. You know, it's probably, and I, I know obviously people like their personal space and turn on the radio or listen to podcasts and all that there. Um, but whenever I, I I bring my son to school on the bike and of a primary school of, I think it's 650 kids, we're, we're the only ones who cycle right. to school. And I think it, it's, well, it's over 50% drive. And this is just a normal primary school where most people live probably within a mile mm. of the school. And you will see things like parents driving to the top of the street <laughs> to drop the kid yeah. off to school. And when they get up to the top of the street, it, it's a road, it's a traffic jam. Mm. So it will take you maybe four or five times as long to drive it as it would to walk it. You just see insane things going on with people, particularly with yeah, dropping kids to school. The school run is, is something I've spent years sort of going crazy about, you know. Um, it, it's, it's an unbelievable thing. And, and but that, again, there's loads of things there, aren't there? Because, because there's, there's this fear of your child going on their own. Isn't there? So, so that leads back to the problems we were talking about earlier on with the helicopter parent. Then you've got the fact that you're trying to embody managing, you know, a, a work-life balance that's crazy that doesn't give you time to do family things. You know, we've created a really weird, weird system, and and then not trusting other people with your children because there's probably other people from the street walking could walk to school yeah. but 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 also you know it's it's also that that being you know it's all that traffic jam you're not in a traffic jam you are the traffic jam isn't it that you are yeah, traffic right. yeah. so all the things you say all the reasons why your kid can't walk to school it's too dangerous because there's too many cars so you drive them there so you create the too many cars situation it's really really difficult to undo and i think you're right about the fact that cars are expensive so you you buy them to use them you know it's just, it's, it's a it's a difficult thing, and they they really are expensive, aren't they? they? They cost fifty pence a mile on average when you when you cost them out, you know, to use. It's oh, really, really they're yeah. very they're a really luxurious way of getting around. If if you if you see them as cost per mile, you know, because there's obviously insurance, road tax, fuel, and depreciation. Petrol, so, depreciation so you can see how it can easily be be um, fifty pence a mile. Well, I know because I mean, uh, my my bike is. I think I've had fifteen years now. It cost me two hundred pounds and maybe a hundred pound or two of servicing. So that is has definitely been a pretty cost effective yeah. purchase. Because, because I think that's what I think that's one of the, the things car. that people have realised from COVID as well is is that without, you know, when you work at home, the costs of commuting are much reduced, and and actually people have had yeah. more disposable income because of that, which has allowed some businesses to thrive. Well, bikes are made amazingly. Mm. One of my friends owns a bike shop, and they they did more business between March and June than they did in the previous year. So it's wow. incredible. Yeah. And I know that the new trend for electric bikes as well is this kind of encouraging. Yeah, I love, I love electric bikes. I think they're going to be another thing that really unlocks the city for people. My, my wife has yeah. an electric bike, and but- and and uh, she's well since. She's done 2,000 kilometers since lockdown on it, you know, getting around to work and doing things because the roads were quiet, so she felt a lot safer. And also because she had an electric bike, she just felt 
she could always get home at night easily. She wasn't tired, you know, that the, the, they're amazingly liberating, you know, as, as a, as a thing. And even mm-hmm. when it's raining, you can put it in boost and go, go at 16 miles an yeah. hour and, <laughs> you know, and get home quicker. You know? yeah. They're they all incredible. Yeah. So I think they're going to be one of the really big changes to cities, you know, I think along with the scooter, I think. Um, yeah. They like the scooter as well. That's, that's, that's another one. Um, I had this theory that as in, in Northern Ireland, there's always a big issue where the other regional towns always complain that kind of Belfast gets everything, gets all the attention, the investment, et cetera, et cetera. And what I was thinking of, if you have a situation where more people are working from home, even for a few days a week, that that is a positive because what will happen is you have some boy who's lives in Macrofelt or Oma or whatever. And they're normally commuting every day into Belfast and it takes them two or three hours and sitting in traffic and all that. So what's happening is instead for even two days a week, they'll be at home in Mackerfelt or Oma. And what'll happen is they'll be in the house, lunchtime will come around, they want to get out. So they dander down to the local cafe and the restaurant to kind of meet their friend or to get out and about. And the point I'm making is that I think if you get that situation that's going to help to kind of revitalize a lot of these kind of smaller towns and villages around Northern Ireland. If more people are around during the day, is there, is there kind of yeah, merit in that I, argument? I think that's already been seen. I think in quite a lot of places. I, I, I was talking to people who who work on on the, on the outskirts of London, and some of the dormitory towns have really been really vibrant over the over the past few months. So I think I think that could be really good. I, I think those towns need some entrepreneurs to create interesting infrastructure because a lot of the the sort of retail and and sort of leisure-based in infrastructure in those small towns is almost non-existent now and it needs someone to take a risk mm-hmm. on, the, on those high streets maybe the councils have got to offer you know sort of useful you know business sharing cafe situation spaces to get things started because i think it could be an amazing renaissance for those small towns like that because although otherwise there's I can't see a, a solution because, you know, globalization is is pushing people to cities. You know, even even around say Greater Manchester, the the smaller towns of Greater Manchester are, are dying. You know, you know Rochdale, Bolton, Oldham, you know Stockport are all doing really badly because everything's getting sucked into the centre of Manchester. It's exactly the same there, and I I don't think it's a I don't think it's because Manchester gets everything or Belfast gets everything. I, th- I think it's just that people have to, you know, when you're talking globally, you have to, you have to somehow be able, people have to be able to m- mark you on a map, don't they? Somehow, it's it's, it's interesting when yeah, when, it's... when Adidas bought Reebok. Reebok were in um, um, Bolton because of the Reebok Stadium was Bolton Wanderers Stadium, and they bought Reebok, and then within six months they pulled out of. Um, old um, Bolton and, and moved to Trafford Park in Manchester because they need. They said they needed a Manchester postcode and a Manchester address for the people in the there other businesses in the rest of the world to know where they were. You know, and, and, and it's, it's five miles, five miles geographically, but but one's Manchester and the other one's Bolton, and no one knows where Bolton is. You know, you know. That, that, that's, that, so you can that's see that Belfast versus versus Oma. Probably, you know, it's the same sort of issue. Well, that 
I suppose that kind of brings us to a subject that there's a phrase you said to me a few years ago when we were at a, a, an event, and you, you said that uh, Northern Ireland was a hyper low density distributed city, and that always blew my mind, right? So maybe do you want to explain to the, the listeners what a hyper low density distributed <laughs> yeah. city well, is? Well, you know, I, I suppose I, I look at you look at Northern Ireland. There's, there's one and a half million people or so, a bit more maybe, and and so you look at that and you say, if they were in one place, that'd be a medium sized city in in the rest of the UK, wouldn't it? It's Manchester's three million. It's about the size of Leeds, right? So so if you imagine all the things Leeds has, Leeds has suburbs. It has urban areas that are poor it has parks it has hills it does everything and if you, if you actually look if you actually catalog what leeds has and you catalog what northern ireland has you find it's got exactly the same stuff it's just the stuff spread out more <laughs> so, so what you realize is northern ireland is really a bit like leeds it's like leeds spread out over more distance so that's the hyper low density thing and, and i think rather than so so and, and so when you look at leeds you don't look at we don't get Otley to fight with Headingley to fight with Beeston. Mm-hmm. We just see it as a, a, a unitary thing, you know, and, and, we, and, and we understand that the city centre needs to function in Leeds really well for Otley to do well. But what we have in, in Northern mm-hmm. Ireland is everywhere fighting with each other to try and, try and do better than the other places because they all think they're independent places. So... Derry's trying to do this, where Omer's trying to do that, and the Causeway Glens are trying to do this, and Belfast is trying to do this, and Lisbon's doing this. And, and I think they'd be much better to sit down and pretend they're one place and try and understand how to connect them in a way that makes them function as, as one place and, and enjoy the fact that the, the, parks, the park might be the Mourns. Or you know it might be the sparings, yeah. or you know you know you know what I mean, and, and actually and and then create the right infrastructure to make sure you can get because it takes it takes an hour and a half to get from North Leeds to South Leeds, and it takes about that to get to to get to Derry from 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 Belfast. Yeah. So so in fact in in chronological terms it's not really that much different from Leeds, but in spatial terms it looks different on a map, but actually chronologically yeah. it's quite similar. So I think there's a way of perhaps seeing it like that would could could make a much more new and exciting way of seeing seeing Northern Ireland than the way we see it at the moment. Yeah, I mean, I, I thought it was a pretty powerful idea because, as you, as you say, you have this kind of constant bickering between all the different councils and towns and over investment and funds. And the, even simple things, like you say, why does every council need to have separate bin collection systems and all their own trucks and staff? And even, you know, councils that border each other, like Belfast and Lisburn. And you can, why why do you need all these duplications? You know, it doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. Everyone has to have their own wee, wee thing. And to think of it like education or health and the planet as kind of one place, does there's a certain yeah. sense, I think. It's really interesting because yeah. I'm on the ministerial advisory group for architecture. We did loads of reviews of the local development plans, doing critiques of them. And every local development plan said the same thing. We're going to increase our population by 30,000, by 50,000, by 60,000. And where are they going to come from, those people? Because because if, if Lisbon yeah. increases its, they'll probably get them from Belfast. But Belfast's increasing its. So it's, yeah, you know, they're all fighting for the same people, you know, and, and, and I think they'd be better off sitting down and making a, a unitary plan for, for, for the whole province and saying, 
how you know where does you know how does how does it how does Lisbon work with Derry? How does Derry work with o, Omer? You know because because I think I think there's a way of of you know I I just think you know you know you take you take the Lake District where I'm now you know if there were one lake it wouldn't be the Lake District would it actually it actually mm-hmm. it actually thrives from having you know. 10 different lakes that are all subtly different, but are all connected and share a common sort of territory, you know, and that makes people come here. Whereas if there was just one lake, it would just be like anywhere else, wouldn't it? You, you know, you know, and I think Belfast could, by being the sort of Belf, the sort of Northern Irish district could, could, could have, it could have a bit of everything because I think, you know, we have young staff who've come from, you know, maybe, um, I don't know, Chile, and they've come to work at Queen's because mm-hmm. they want to go surfing because they really like surfing and it's yeah. a really good place to go surfing. But Belfast doesn't see itself as a surf centre because it doesn't got any surf in Belfast. <laughs> you know, but actually, if, when you see it as a region, you can say, this region's brilliant. You can go surfing, you can go mountain climbing, you can do this, and you can work in a global financial centre you know, all within one city. There's not many places you can do that. In yeah. 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 It, it's, it's a great concept. Um, just whether or not we got our, our leaders <laughs> and politicians to buy into that's yeah, the tricky part. Of that's it. always. <laughs> yeah. And see, well, just to finish up, um, is there any books that you've been reading recently in lockdown that you'd recommend to people or any podcasts or anything you've read online that just to kind of leave us with any little suggestions of what, um, what you've well, been enjoying? What I've been reading over the, over, I, I've been, I've been trying to catch up on, on interesting situationist texts recently, because I was thinking, um, this radical rethink of things needs needs a different way of looking at things. So, so I've been I've been reading the Revolution of Everyday Life by Raoul Vanagheim, absolutely brilliant book written in written in nineteen sixty nine. Um, you know, the famous quote is, "We have a world of pleasures to win and nothing to lose but boredom." And so, I, and 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 it, mm-hmm. it's it's really opened my eyes to to the to the radical thinking of 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 the of the 1960s about, about what the city could be and how we can make the city into, into whatever we want it to be rather than it being what it used to be, you know? So, so I'd recommend everybody read a bit of situationist text for, for the, for the, for the lockdown because it, uh, and what I mean is there a quick way of explaining situationism? Um, or what's, well, what's that? I, I, I suppose it, situationism sort of says that that that, that you you are you're a victim of circumstance, and so mm-hmm. but you don't have to you don't have to be, so you can create whatever reality you want based on the situation you find yourself in, and and so 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 that that's how that's how it starts. So so you know. You know, one of the one of the famous um, stories in it is is that what you do is you go to a city with a map of another city and you navigate with the wrong map, trying to get somewhere, and you see what you find as you go, and so and so and and so what it's sort of saying is 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 you don't have to rely on existing realities to create the next reality. That's really the the the, the major idea of it. And I suppose yeah. that's what COVID's shown us that we we can create a bike lane down the Omar Road, can't we? Or, or down, you yeah. know, you know, 
wherever we want, or we can, you know, make amazing things happen in parks. You know, Manchester had a a 5,000 person rave on an old sewage works um, two weeks ago, (laughs) illegally, (laughs) you know, because those things can happen. You know, you know, we can, we can, we can make whatever a reality we want really. And, and, and we have to get together with people with, with like mine and we have to, we have to, um, make the city we want rather than the city we have to endure. You know, I think that's the important thing. That, I think that's a pretty powerful message to leave on because I can imagine if I'm a politician or in the council at the moment, I, I imagine they're freaking out because all you can see is shop closures, job losses, uh, rent or uh, rate income going down, you know, less people coming into the city centre, shops closing, restaurants closing, recession. And as you say, I mean, that you can't do that, but this idea of, well, you can make your yeah. own reality and, and have an alternative reality other than this kind of recession and gloom is, yeah, a, is a quite I important message. It's a bit like that forest fire thing, isn't it? I, I remember being in, in Coimbra in, in Portugal and at, at the university there, and it's like an old monastery. And there was this this incredible forest around it, and then the forest burnt down. And I went the next time, and and it, everything was just black for miles around on every hillside. I was thinking, oh my god, this is horrendous. And I went a year later, and there was an amazing bloom of flowers and all sorts of stuff happening, you know. And and and, and it was yeah. and it was incredible because because sometimes you need big change, don't you? You know. And 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 I think I think it's a real opportunity for young people to create the century they want you know you know because because the, I, I think covid is the end of the 20th century i I, th- I think what it's actually done is ended the 20th century for us a bit like the first world war ended victorian times you know and and so i i, I think we're going to i i think the 2020s are going to be amazing years because we're going to and they're going to have to be because we're going to have to stop climate change going to have to change to a carbon-free environment, going to have to change our food systems to be more sustainable. It's going to be a really interesting thing. And I think young people have got a chance now because it's a level playing field. The existing industries and businesses are dead. So you're starting out at the, sa- the same level as, as any other established business today if you're, if you're a young business, aren't you? So I think there's a real chance for, for a sea change, you know. I'm, I'm impressive. Greg, I could listen to you all day. I've often thought of sneaking into some of your lectures at Queen's, but <laughs> maybe, maybe I'll sneak into some of your virtual lectures and then yeah, in the new term instead. And say, yeah, yeah, I know. Um, so we'll, we'll leave it there. Uh, that's Greg Keith from Queen's University. If you've enjoyed today's podcast, please subscribe and give us a review. So Greg, thanks very much for being on the show. It's been great fun. Thank you very much for having me. The Slugger Tool podcast is sponsored by Queen's University Belfast. Researchers at Queen's are at the heart of supporting global efforts to understand the coronavirus. To discover more about their research, please visit qeb.ac.uk.